Hey, it's Mark. Welcome to this best of episode of the show. We're used to speaking with highly accomplished biopharma executives and the guests late this year continued that long tradition. You'll hear highlights of the conversations my colleague Jack O'Brien had with marketing execs from Moderna Pharmaceuticals, Arrakis Therapeutics, and Dentsu Health. They covered topics as diverse as leading beyond COVID, the struggle for LGBTQIA plus progress, and the backstory behind an award-winning Parkinson's app. Of course, a number of actors and athletes have become well-regarded in healthcare circles as well, and I sat down with a couple of them this year. The inclusion of Patrick Dempsey and Bernie Williams on our guest list reflects the increasing importance of celebrity endorsers and influencers to the healthcare marketing ecosystem. There are top five of 2023, and our producer, Bill Fitzpatrick, and I are going to recap these conversations with clips from each. And Lesh is here with the health policy update, her final of the year. Hey, Mark. This week, I'll be recapping the biggest health policy moves of 2023. I'd also like to give a well-deserved shout out to our friends at Sonic Branding firm Cizium Sohn who, besides composing the theme music to the podcast, have written some lovely variations on that theme expressly for this holiday edition. If you should happen to need sonic branding for a brand or project you're working on, be sure to give them a call. Without further ado, let's begin. We hope you enjoy it. Number five. Moderna's Kate Cronin, chief brand officer, spoke about how she's working to equate the Cambridge company, best known for its mRNA-based vaccine, with disease areas beyond COVID. This interview aired on August 4th. Cronin is no stranger to issues management, having spent the better part of her career serving pharma clients as an agency executive before joining Moderna in 2021. She's now focusing her firm on a longer-term goal, capitalizing on Moderna's built-in brand recognition, but also communicating to convince the public and investors that Moderna isn't merely, in her words, a COVID company. She also spoke about how she's striving to make that narrative relatable to people through a mix of education and entertainment. You talked about the segmentation of the critics that Moderna has faced, whether it's on the pricing side or on the anti-vax side. Recently, there was a very prominent one with Aaron Rodgers attending the U.S. Open, crossing out your logo, saying no vax Djokovic in reference to Djokovic's uh, refusal to get the COVID vaccine. What was your response to that or what was the company's response? Because I can imagine you hear from plenty of people, but when it's somebody as you know, prominent as one of the most popular players in the NFL, it takes on a different weight, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, look there to be, to be fair. I mean, um, we all know that, um, you know, Novak was, is, did not want to take a vaccine. And that was very prominent last year at the U S open and we sponsored the U S open. Um, and this year, you know, the tweet or, um, the social media from, from Aaron Rodgers, I think, um, it's, it's his prerogative to, to say and do what he wants to say. We don't respond to that sort of a thing. That's, you know, it's up to him if he wants to do creative, uh, you know, messaging around um, his point of view. I appreciate the response to that. Kind of pivoting off of the COVID questions here, obviously Moderna is trying to rebrand itself, or I shouldn't say rebrand itself, but put itself out there as a company that wasn't just a COVID-19 manufacturer. You're doing a lot in the cancer space, looking at other uh, conditions that your mRNA technology could affect. Can you give us an update on that? Because I know a lot of people are saying, what's the next move? You know, what's the sequel here? Yeah. So um, we're really leaning in on um, a number of different categories um, beyond um, COVID. So if you think about our pillars, uh, we're respiratory disease. So it's COVID, flu, RSV. We're going to have an RSV vaccine, a flu vaccine. Eventually, we're going to have a combination of possibly COVID, flu, COVID, flu, RSV. Um, So respiratory is a key pillar. Oncology is a key pillar. We had data last year and this year that demonstrates that our individualized neoantigen therapy is is working in our clinical studies um, versus Keytruda and in combination with Keytruda. Um, And so that's super exciting. And then we also are looking at rare diseases. 
um, and I think latent vaccines as well. So if you think about Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus, I mean, we're looking at all those categories. And the, the cool thing and the exciting thing is that it, mRNA actually works um, in our studies and um, across all these different disease categories. So for us, the challenge now is prioritizing. So which ones, you know, we're, we're limited in terms of resources. We can't study everything all at once. So which, which categories are we going to lean into? Um, and I think right now we're really leaning into respiratory, oncology, and rare. Um, those feel like that they have the greatest potential um, to happen um, soonest. So that for us has been super exciting. And what I want, what my role is, is to communicate this, um, is to make sure people understand that we're not just a COVID company and that. We're a platform technology company, and that platform technology is mRNA, and that we are able to um, use this across a number of different of different categories and disease areas. And so that's really what we say when we talk about the mRNA age, and this changes everything. Um, it's it's an agile way of studying. It's um, we're able to tweak, um, for example, our flu. We're able to tweak very quickly um, and ch- change it up based on you know what the new variants of concern are. Um, and it's a model that's very different from typical uh, pharmaceuticals. And I imagine that goes into the fatigue, the vaccine fatigue that you mentioned earlier and being able to say, oh, this is a one shot flu, COVID, RSV. I did want to go to the messaging aspect because I think about it from you know people that I speak with in my life who, if I say Moderna, I think their first in- instinct is going to be, oh, I got their vaccine. I got COVID is the first thing that comes to mind. When it comes to that messaging, how do you measure success on that front? I imagine in the next you know five to 10 years, you would like to people to hear Moderna and they think, oh, yeah, that's where I got my RSV vaccine or they treat you know this condition and it's outside of necessarily just COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a built-in brand recognition. As you know, um, prior to COVID, people did not um, recognize pharmaceutical company brands. Like you got a a product, you didn't know who manufactured it. Was it BMS? Was it Novartis? I don't know. Barely know the name of the product, you know, half the time. So I think now we have this great brand recognition. And so people recognize Moderna. And so equating Moderna with mRNA is great because then we look at mRNA and say, let's educate around why should you care about mRNA? And we're equating that with cutting edge and innovation because it is. And so we're connecting the dots for people so that when the next Moderna vaccine or product comes out, you can say, yeah, I know I've heard about mRNA and I know I have mRNA in me um, and I'm interested in, you know, asking for Moderna vaccine or the next Moderna product. And I think it's just it's just a very um, it's more of a consumer mindset that I think has not been typical in this category, because a lot of times it's usually the providers who are making those decisions. But I think because there's a familiarity already with Moderna and what we do and mRNA, I think it's just the next step is um, further educating and getting people to understand, you know, what are the products that are coming and being aware of you know, how our technology works in their body. Number four. At this year's Cannes Lions Health International Festival of Creativity, Dentsu International earned the Pharma Lions Grand Prix for scrolling therapy, an experimental AI-based app launched for Brazil-based pharma company Europharma that aims to help people with Parkinson's slow down the progression of the disease while they scroll through social media. In this conversation, Colette Duai, Global Chief Creative Officer of Dentsu Health, described the global team effort behind the win. This interview aired on September 21st. Jack spoke with Duai about the conception and execution of scrolling therapy, what it means for the Parkinson's community, and how it felt to take home the Pharma Grand Prix. Coco, how are you doing today? 
Very well. Thank you. I appreciate you being on the show and we're going to really focus the conversation around scrolling therapy. And for those in the audience that may be unaware, I, I would be surprised if anybody in our audience is, can you give us just a quick overview of what scrolling therapy is? And then we can kind of get into the specifics of how it all came about. Sure. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm very excited to be here and talk about this because this this was a, a labor of love um, between Dentsu Creative and Dentsu Health. It's really a beautiful, simple idea. It is an app that helps people with facial masking symptoms um, who are living with Parkinson's disease. And basically what this app does is allow them to still feel human, to engage in social media, but while engaging in social media is to exercise their facial muscles while they're engaging. And they can actually use their, their face expressions to actually navigate social media, which is amazing, right? So a very simple app. It doesn't necessarily seem, seem simple when you think about what it can do, but the idea um, was really allowing people with Parkinson's to engage in social media while doing exercises that are typically very daunting. And I'm really kind of curious, again, I kind of want to get into the origins of how it all came together, because when I first heard about scrolling therapy, it was truly like an aha, like, how did somebody not come up with that idea uh, in the first place? And I, I wonder, like, how how it all came to be in terms of feedback and, you know, mm -hmm. is this the way that we want to present it? You know, what was that process like? Internally at Dentsu, um, collectively, we use this term called radical collaboration. And it's the first company truly that I've been at that truly practices radical collaboration. So I was brought on about a year and a half ago to help launch Dentsu Health Solutions before there was a true formalized solutions offering. And um, how it all came about, which I think is a great story, was really thought through and developed, the idea was developed in Argentina. Um, then we produced it in the US and then um, final production in Brazil. So really it was a global team effort to think through what were some of the things right out of the gate was we were a brand new team working together. Um, I was new to the team in Argentina, um, vice versa production in Brazil. We were all coming together doing introductions, but needing to work together pretty fast. And I thought, what a brilliant turnout that we had, because not knowing each other and having to get in and work so quickly together, we really did work as a team. So something like, how did it come about? Health got involved because, of course, I've been doing this now for 24 years, um, health, the focus on health. And we want to make sure that we are approaching, you know, any kind of health initiative in the right way. From a creative perspective, Dentsu Creative was very involved in the original idea. But then we were thinking, how do we make this come to fruition? We have a colleague of ours named Sebastian Porta, who was diagnosed about six years ago with Parkinson's disease. And he was a, an integral part of this story. I, I, I like to say that Seb was the heart of this story and how it how it came to life. And he talked very early on before we even had real pen to paper yet about the importance of facial masking. And for those who, who don't know what facial masking is, is it literally um, freezes your facial muscles um, and you're, you, you lose the fundamental right to express yourself, whether that be laughing or crying or being surprised. And Seb talked about in a way 
that he said he didn't know much about it. And his doctor mentioned it to him. And as he started talking around, a lot of people didn't realize that, you know, there were exercises, but for the people who did, it was very daunting. You have to go through 45 minutes of standing in the mirror to do these facial exercises. It's very lonely. Um, It could be very degrading, make someone feel childish, if you will. And quite frankly, they tap out early. And so there's a huge, um, you know, drop off only like 3%, I believe it is engage in facial masking exercises. So, you know, the, the insights really is not just one, the insights that came together early on was talking about how can we use something so simple like facial recognition and, or something like the insight of we spend close to two and a half hours a day on our phones and social media swiping. And those conversations kept leading to more ideas of like, could we actually help someone with Parkinson's use their facial exercises as a way to navigate? So as those talks, and you know, I wasn't part of those early talks, but as those talks took place, we realized that we were onto something very special. And I got introduced to Seb pretty early on and and had a lot of wonderful conversations with him. And all of us so wanted this idea to live. So that's where the radical collaboration came in, understanding that we were all from different disciplines, that we needed to hit the ground running and running fast, if you will. We were trying to make an April deadline for um, Parkinson's awareness disease. So that's truly about how it started out, so much more took place thereafter. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. There may have been no earth-shattering policy changes in 2023 like the ones we saw in 2022, with Roe v. Wade being overturned and the Inflation Reduction Act signed into law. But 2023 was still a relatively busy year on the health policy front, all things considered, with drug pricing, mental health and AI regulation at the forefront. The year kicked off with Senator Bernie Sanders taking the helm of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, and vowing to rein in high drug costs in the, quote, cruel and dysfunctional healthcare system in the U.S., Sanders somewhat held true to that promise. The HELP committee spent most of the year holding hearings needling pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, over their role in high drug costs. Some bipartisan packages focused on PBM reform have partially made their way through Congress, like the Better Mental Health Care, Lower Cost Drugs, and Extenders Act. But the biggest drug pricing moves happened in the Medicare negotiation provision in the IRA. In August, the federal government announced the first 10 drugs that would be part of the Medicare negotiation process. All pharma companies, including Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and Merck, agreed to participate, albeit a bit reluctantly. 2023 was just the beginning of the Medicare negotiation process, and it's something that's not going away anytime soon, with major implications for those in the healthcare industry. By September next year, we'll expect to see the new prices of those first 10 drugs. The Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, was also on a roll in 2023, cracking down on the healthcare industry in the absence of broader federal privacy regulation. The FTC spent the year targeting companies like GoodRx, BetterHealth, and Flow Health over their use of health data for marketing purposes. 
This year, a new angle on mental health, loneliness, emerged on the policy front as well. In May, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy called out isolation as a real public health issue for the first time and as a major driver of the high rates of anxiety and depression in the U.S. Since then, lawmakers have been working on crafting legislation to address loneliness. At the end of the year, we saw the Biden administration make moves on AI regulation in health care. For the first time, the White House issued an executive order on AI that would require federal agencies to develop responsible AI standards and guidelines, an issue that will carry into 2024. Finally, the Biden administration announced in December that the federal government would be developing guidelines for the use of margin rights to lower drug costs for the first time. We'll likely continue to see that push for more drug pricing reform in 2024. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Welcome back to the top five. Number three. Few issues in modern America are more polarizing and divisive than those surrounding the transgender community. Where the pharma and biotech industries fit into this contentious dynamic was the subject of this interview. For that, we turn to Jennifer Petter, founder and CIO of Arrakis Therapeutics and one of the few openly trans leaders in biopharma. Petter spoke about how the biopharma industry can advance the struggle for LGBTQIA progress. This interview aired on June 21st. This conversation actually ran during Pride Month, the annual month-long occasion where LGBTQIA members and allies celebrate and remember the history of the community. Petter weighed in with her thoughts regarding the ongoing debate around trans issues in America, where progress stands, and what the industry has done on that front and where there's room for improvement. I'm curious, too, when you talk about the support that these organizations have for their workforce. I mean, it, it seems to kind of mirror what we've seen in the country over the past 20 to 25 years, where there's been a greater uh, recognition of, of, say, the LGBTQIA members that are in these organizations and the challenges and the needs that they face with. From your own perspective, how have you seen that evolution take place in farmer, maybe at some of the companies you've worked at? So let's be clear that... Um, in, in most of those past years, I was very much not out. And so I was not sort of testing the waters there. Uh, and so I've, so my, own, my own personal experience has all been inside of the company uh, that I uh, have right here, which is Arrakis Therapeutics. And that's been uniformly positive. Um, I do talk now more, I have a lot of acquaintances and friends in, in other companies, in, at least in the Boston area, some of them biotech, some of them pharma. And, you know, there's a range of responses. Sometimes the companies are very affirmational and um, are, are very sort of overtly supportive uh, and and you sort of get the sense that they're, they're kind of with you. Others, it does seem occasionally to be a bit of, I don't want to say virtue signaling, but, you know, doing what seems to be appropriate, but not really going the extra mile. Um, and so, you know, but those, that means that those companies are in a position where if you work with them, I think you can kind of get them to a better place. What we're not seeing is a lot of just overt sort of opposition or you know, antipathy. Is that something that you ever think that maybe down the line we could progress to seeing companies do that? Or is that, you know, somehow endanger their bottom line? They say maybe that's a bridge too far for us. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to speculate that there may be a certain caution uh, in, in approaching this. And, um, you know, if you just look at the simple calculus, you have to ask, look, you know, what, what is our employee base? And as our employee base becomes more and more out, do we necessarily want to 
to alienate such a large segment of the of the population uh, just as an employee base. Um, in fact, oddly, I think this is part of what's going on at Disney is that, you know, the creative community, um, there's a lot of LGBTQ people that perhaps even overly overrepresented there. And so I, I do think that there's an element of that that influences, you know, how the company ultimately uh, reacts. And I, so I think that there's, you, I don't get the sense that they, that the companies in this area want to, to, to um, turn their backs on their own sort of employee base. How out there in front of the issue they're prepared to get, um, I think really depends in some cases on the leadership at those companies. It's interesting to hear you bring up that point about the workforce. I know in some of the leaders that I've spoken with, they've kind of talked about, you know, what we've seen out of the great resignation and how employees are being more vocal in terms of what they expect from a company. And on that topic of LGBTQ rights and support, that's been front and center in a lot of these conversations, at least from leaders that I've spoken with over the past few months. Yeah, I I think the notion that a company can you know, demand of you a certain closeted uniformity, like we don't want to hear about who you really are, just appear to be a thing of the past. I mean, let's hope it's permanently a thing of the past, but right now it's a thing of the past. And and so um, you just can't expect to, to thrive uh, if you create an environment like that. I want to ask, and this might be a, a broad question, so I apologize in advance, but if there's any sort of message that you would send to maybe your peers or fellow leaders in the industry, given that this is this interview is running during Pride Month, and obviously there's a recognition of the LGBTQ community, but we're also at this very pivotal moment in time where so much progress has been made over the past you know, few decades, and so much is still at stake in terms of you know, different segments of the community. You know, I think that for for smaller companies, it's a matter of leadership, um, just kind of asking, you know, the the employees, like, what do you think about this, and are we are we doing enough, and um, are are we sort of there for you? I think in a in a larger company, that kind of interaction can be tough to to establish, but sometimes it's a matter of going to your ERGs. You know, if the CEO shows up in an ERG meeting and says. I'm just trying to catch up here and make sure that we're not dropping the ball. I think that would be a very positive, very positive message. Um, and not not to, to make sure that it's understood that the ERG is not a SOP, right? That it's actually something that's a vehicle for producing some very positive change in the organization. Uh, so I think that would be helpful. Number two. As I noted in the intro, we not only featured some rock stars of biopharma this year, in recognition of the contributions of celebrities to pharma marketing writ large, we also welcomed a couple of stars from the entertainment world. One of these was the actor Patrick Dempsey, who spoke about a compelling and surprising health angle, his own cancer advocacy. This interview aired on May 3rd. For about a decade, Dempsey played what became one of TV's most well-known medical roles, Dr. Derek Shepard, the neurosurgeon on Grey's Anatomy. While he's no longer a regular on that show, Dempsey told me the TV series has propelled a newer role, that of cancer advocate. Dempsey said he played a doctor on TV for so long that people now kind of project that onto him, which facilitates his efforts to promote a lot of cancer centers that aims to provide more holistic care to patients. Dempsey also spoke about the inspiration behind the center, his mom, who passed away in 2014 after a long battle with ovarian cancer. 
Here's a clip from the interview, which aired a week or so prior to Mother's Day. Patrick, you played a doctor on TV, but as you pointed out, that was a different discipline, right? Yes, indeed. He was a neurosurgeon, yeah. <laughs> not, an, not into oncology. Right, but, but we're here to, to follow up and talk a little bit more about your personal work in healthcare, including uh, your collaboration with Pharma and your Center for People Living with Cancer, the Dempsey Center. And uh, one in three of us is diagnosed at some point in our life uh, with cancer. So it's, That's it's a so staggering number, one in three. Is, Isn't that yeah, something else? Is. It puts it in perspective. Yeah, it does. And the, the, the type of work that we do, we don't treat the disease, we treat the person holistically. Um, we just simply ask, how can we make your life better? We treat the whole family uh, in, in a holistic way that complements traditional medicine and, and the oncology so that they can focus on their discipline and we can focus on the well-being of the patient and the family. So important. Um, Hugely important. And I think, you know, part of the healing process is really the human touch and compassion and empathy in a world that is, as, as we see, is, is really lacking that. Based, I think, because there's so much fear in the world. And that was, that was kind of your parting message. But, um, you know, you also shared a lot about your mom. Thank you for, for that. Uh, it was very, very meaningful. Uh, in 1998, she was unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. Uh, you called it, quote, unquote, a profound piece of news. Uh, talk about your journey with, with your mom, if you, if you would, particularly in its early stages. You know, what was that like going through that with her? My mother was always the strongest figure in the family, right? So to see her vulnerable and to get this diagnosis was so shocking to the entire family. It rocked our whole family, uh, destabilized it. Um, the unknown, how long will she survive? Will she survive? How bad is this? What is this? All these questions emerged from that. And thank goodness my sister worked in the hospital so she could really navigate a lot of the things that most people can't. And to be able to get to the bottom of a lot of these tests, why it's taking so long, what does that mean? Uh, and, and thankfully, she could get us through that. But I was thinking, so what is happening to other families? I mean, we talked a little bit about this on stage. So that was sort of the initial wave. And then what can I do to support my mother's journey? What, you know, what information do I need to tell? What, 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 what can I do? And then finding out that answer, that was a, a challenge that took some time. Right. And that, and that was the key, key question, as you put it. If, if we, we have this great resource in, in, in your, your sister who worked in the healthcare system, but what if others don't? And right. That was the impetus behind uh, the center. Um, the and center, the information is coming at you so quickly when the doctor only has a limited amount of time before they go to the next patient. Yeah. So, you know, it's like bring in a recorder and tape the conversation so you can remember it because it's just yeah. too overwhelming. Yeah. You don't know how to process it because fear gets in the way or another thought will dominate and you're no longer listening. You're out of the moment moment and all of these things occurred so that was what was informing us on okay what what are other people dealing with how are they coping with this yeah do right. they have the skills right. you know some people do some people don't it's it's a wonderful way to kind of take that um and, and do something with it uh you know the center as you said is focused on treating the whole person encompassing scientific and medical efforts as well as complementary care I heard you talk about acupuncture reiki uh you started in maine but you're branching out give listeners an update if you would on, on that both in terms of the number of people you're helping and how you're expanding. Right. So the first quarter going into 2033, we are 57% up on what we were reaching last year. And that has a lot to do with our outreach to the the doctors and the uh, 
the oncologists really referrals. make it. They're, they're they're doing the referrals, so they're they're listening to their doctors and they're coming to us, and then they're also getting word of mouth from other patients who've been through, or other family members who are getting benefit from the treatments that we're giving. So that's how it's been starting. Um, there are about nine thousand people that are newly diagnosed every year in Maine, maybe ten thousand now, uh, because of. COVID, a lot of people did not get in to get their screenings, and now their cancer is a little bit further along, and our need is that much greater. Um, so we are now, as I said, 57% up. So we're at 1,600 people that we're servicing in the first quarter. So, and our goal is to really reach everyone who is newly diagnosed in the state of Maine, as well as staying with the survivors. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at. We are in conversation with... Uh, uh, California, New Hampshire, and New York to have another center and co- connection and co- uh, collaboration with those people. And we're working in uh, 35 states now. Wow. And uh, overseas as well. And overseas as well, yes. Amazing. Um, so we're slowly getting out there. The message is getting there, which is our goal, is to connect with other like-minded centers and to sort of spread the gospel, if you will, of complementary medicine. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the importance of um, physicians being aware of it as, as a resource for, for their patients. Yeah, because in my mom's treatment, I, well, we talked about this a little bit, is that she had a doctor that was really good scientifically and sort of in that discipline, but just had a terrible bedside manner. So it's really how do you bring compassion and empathy, care, uh, to a patient's life. I mean, that makes a big difference. I mean, it, 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 it has a huge impact on one's healing uh, time frame. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and while they're, you know, uh, battling it you know, to, to maximize yeah. the... You want a safe place where you can be heard and you're not rushed, that you are meeting them uh, as human beings, not just as a number. Yeah. Um, you spoke with Steve, as we said, about the importance of supporting the patient as well as the person, which is the philosophy behind the center. Uh, there's so much that goes into treating the whole person uh, when, when they're battling this illness. Big topic. But perhaps can you talk about where you see the biggest unmet need? You know, wh- What aspects of a person's care are the most overlooked? Well, no, what we're seeing and, and what the data is revealing is really the online services and emotional support groups are really key. And the counselors. That's, that's number one. Um, and certainly in rural Maine, the ability to be able to communicate with someone if they're three hours away, if they can jump online, that saves them money as far as the fuel cost and getting to that place, and also their home, right, which is a much better place for them to be. We want to get them out of the hospital and back home in a a, a safer environment, a healthier environment, and you're seeing statistically that if you can get someone out of the hospital and back home, the survival rate, the recovery rate is that much greater. So we're seeing that through our online services, through Dempsey Connects. That's been something that has been accelerated due to COVID. Acupuncture Reiki second and third in in, in, in in services that we provide that are very popular and of course nutrition, mm-hmm. online yoga, meditation, things like that, all those wow. things. Oh, terrific. Number one. Bernie Williams brought a compelling health angle of his own. Williams is best known for having played in the MLB for 16 years, all of it with the New York Yankees. But his father's guitar playing ignited a passion for music, one which he's leveraging in the latest phase of a Beringer Ingelheim-backed rare disease awareness campaign. Williams spoke about how jazz guitar and his involvement in the BI campaign has helped him process the loss of his dad. This interview originally aired on March 2nd. Celebrities and influencers are playing an increasingly important role in pharma's patient and disease advocacy efforts. 
In Williams' case, we spoke about BI's national respiratory campaign, Breathless, which is designed to raise awareness of a group of rare lung conditions and how music may support those living with these conditions. I was also fascinated to learn that Bernie views his longtime involvement in disease advocacy as his way of processing the loss of his father, which came during his storied Yankees career. During the course of the conversation, it became clear that this was no ordinary celebrity endorsement, but something much deeper and personal. Here's the clip of the interview, which aired just after Rare Diseases Day. Your story has allowed uh, Barringer to, to reach millions of people across the country uh, with, with these messages about awareness and, and you know, recognizing signs and symptoms and, and the need for timely care. So, it, you know, from what I hear, it's really making an impact. That said, you've been partnering, you know, with this company since 2017, I believe. That's that's a number, good number of years there. So it's it's clearly very important to you personally. So just wondering if you could tell us more about, you know, what not only what you know drove you initially to partner, but what keeps you involved. You know, what what motivates you to uh, continue to uh, stay involved in this and make it such a signature effort. Well, I, I've seen firsthand the impact that uh, our message has. And then, in, in people that are uh, affected by by these uh, illnesses, prior to 2020, uh, you know, you mentioned 2017. I mean, it's for three years, I was really hands-on, traveling uh, to all these places that uh, baseball have has given me a platform to speak on behalf of this cause, and uh, I've got I've gotten great and positive feedback, you know, from uh, patients, you know, get a chance to hear the story. And by the way, uh, it has been a, a great way for me to process uh, still the, the grieving process that I've uh, got over the years. And uh, when I my dad passed away in 2001, uh, like I said before, I was immersed in the season and I was doing a lot of things that didn't really allow me to fully go through my grieving process uh, with my dad and everything that has happened. I sort of kept living life. Uh, year after year, playing baseball, and I sort of put that in the back burner uh, until I retired and I was able to be a part of this campaign. Has been, in many ways, very therapeutic for me to relive those emotions and actually share them with people and tell my story and the story of my family with this ordeal and listening to other people's similar stories uh, about their loved ones and uh, even patients, you know, talking to me, you know, about you know what they're going through and. Uh, uh, really being appreciative of the efforts that we're having to uh, bring awareness to uh, this cause has been very positive uh, everywhere that I've gone. And then 2020 happened. And then another mm-hmm. respiratory illness sort of took yeah, right. uh, president. And, uh, you know, it, it became even more about poignant uh, to uh, talk about these uh, interstitial lung diseases uh, in, in, in a more... Uh, direct way having you know obviously the advent of uh, COVID and uh, related things happening so since I couldn't do the uh, the sort of day to day and kind of traveling from city to city to do my awareness campaign uh, we decided to utilize the song that I wrote for my dad as part of uh, uh, an initiative to even uh, enhance uh, the, you know the, the awareness process so we decided to put lyrics to the tune, which was originally composed as an instrumental tune. And uh, we had a bit of a contest that uh, we had uh, about 70 uh, plus inquiries and uh, people trying to put lyrics to this tune. And uh, we had a winner and uh, the winner uh, was able to, uh, you know, to lend us his lyrics and we were able to record this tune 
and put lyrics to it. I turn a page of your story in the scrapbook of my memories. Every day I think of what you've done for me and the breath of life you gave. Now, <laughs> uh, it has a different uh, title, more poignant to the campaign, uh, but it's the same tune and uh, has been a source of great satisfaction, you know, having that sort of relive that tune that was made in 2001, more than 20 years ago, and kind of make it sort of a theme of this great campaign and uh, having lyrics and breathe a new life, you know, literally breathe a new life to, to the to the song has been uh, one of the sources of uh, great source of pride. And uh, and I know my dad is looking down and really happy with uh, what has happened with uh, the whole campaign uh, and the efforts that we're doing to raise awareness to you know, the thing that killed him. Absolutely. I'm sure he is. And, um, you know, just in case people aren't aware, when, when the pandemic sidelined your stadium appearances, you and BI launched this, uh, you call it, I think you called it the breathless ballad challenge, which was yeah, the, with the, the contest, right? The public <laughs> contest to write lyrics to the instrumental tribute to your father, which you mentioned, Para Don Berna. And, uh, I think you had a, a jury com- comprised of Queen Latifah, right? The Bacon brothers and Paul Schaefer. And uh, there was also a, a documentary that BI sponsored, Beyond Breathless. So can you comment on what's next for the campaign? Well, I think we're trying to uh, maximize, you know, the platform that uh, baseball gives us every year, especially in the summer. We're trying to reach out to all these communities, that, you know, that have a, a major incident in these cases and uh, trying to, you know, spread the gospel about, you know, uh, early diagnosis and, uh, you know, uh, having people, you know, deal with the symptoms and not, not really procrastinating to go into the doctor and uh, get checked out. And, uh, you know, those efforts are, you know, they, they have proven to have an impact in, in, in many lives, partnering with the uh, Homolary Fibrosis Foundation as well and doing some work with them, you know, in conjunction with this. It's all interconnected and uh, it has legs and uh, it has the ability to impact people in my community and, and uh, all over the country. Uh, and uh, I'm, you know, just very uh, delighted to be part of this process and the, the evolution of this process going into turning to lung health, incorporating music as a tool and as a resource. And uh, it's just kind of falling right in, into what I'm doing, you know, right now. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm very proud and uh, uh, very eager to continue the efforts uh, to, to raise awareness about uh, interstitial lung diseases. Well, you've done it again. You've burned another hour or so of your day listening to the MMM podcast. Just kidding. A big thanks to my co-hosts, Jack and Lesha, to producer Bill Fitzpatrick, and to all the listeners out there. We invite you to go back and listen to any of these in full if you like. Check out the podcast page on our website, or you can find these episodes on Apple iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can look forward to more great audio content coming your way in the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. 